Welcome to the Our Innergate podcast. We're leading the education rebellion for nurses by nurses. Your hosts, Karen DeMarco and Antra Boyd, asked me to do this intro because of my sexy voice. You're welcome. Get ready to be enlightened, entertained and inspired by experts who don't just think outside the box. They blow it up and want to resuscitate your love for learning. When you're finished, listen for instructions on how to check off one of those CE credit boxes by heading over to the rnegade.pro website. Keep your knickers on. The show is about to start. Actually, knickers are optional. We'll never know. Do a rolling start. Because if you screw up in the beginning, we can always edit it out. And sometimes we'll leave in the script. We'll leave in the scripts because that makes it fun. And I am an endless supply of screw ups. Right? (laughs) Endless. Very entertaining. I actually, uh, we did a little intro and I just had some oil of oregano and I let out a loud belch and I think we might just keep it in. (laughs) Now all she needs to do is let out a good fart and we're good to go. (laughs) Rolling start. Take two. Welcome everybody to the RN Gade. We are so lucky to have well, you can say about her what you're going to say about her. I don't know what you're going to say about her, but uh, this woman is solely responsible for it. my life changed after I met her and went through her program. And what I mean, she was like my gateway drug to it, a spiritual awakening. The program, I often say the there's patient advocacy programs all over the United States. Um, and, you know, but most of them deal with like, uh, they teach you how to be kind of an ombudsman in a hospital, conflict resolution, you know, legal issues, you know, risk management, that kind of thing. Um, Karen's program is like walking into a classroom, thinking the world is flat, and she shows you a satellite picture. And that's kind of like Mm -hmm. the best metaphor I can think it, it changes your entire perspective, not only of the medical system, what's possible for human beings in their health and in their health care, um, but also what's possible for you in your life. So I'm thrilled to have her here to pick her brain and hear her story. Mm-hmm. And I met Antra in 2011 and what year? I was 2017. And what happened for you in that class? What did happen for me in that class? So I found Karen on the internet and I called her up because I was already frustrated and at my wits end with the conventional medicine model. And I found her online, called her up. We had a long chat. I signed up for her course. Karen has become a mentor for me and has helped guided my practice since I left her program. And her passion and her vision is so progressive and infectious, not an infection. (laughs) By the time I left her program, I just knew that I wanted to be a patient advocate. And I think part of it was just seeing how Karen made it possible and her passion and vision for what this role can look like in the United States and how it can help people. Yeah. So enough with the teasing of what it's all about. I think as we hear your story, Karen, your program and your vision were the seeds that were planted for a great change in in the healthcare system and how we approach 
health and medicine. You told me a story once about a vision that you had. And I know that's kind of like jumping right in and kind of in the middle. Would you mind starting? And don't worry if it's not a good place, we could edit it later. But <laughs> would you mind starting with that? No, I don't mind at all. I had already quit my job as PDICU and had to figure out what to do next. I was focused on patient advocacy because there were so many faults in the system and nobody else was doing it as far as I could find. I looked all over the place for somebody to teach me how to do this. Uh -huh. Nobody was doing it. So I'm sitting on my couch looking out at the desert one day and this vision, I don't know what else to call it. It was like a movie in my head. And I saw I would help to create the model for this leading edge professional nursing role. And I saw that I would be teaching and I saw that we would be working collaboratively across the United States to improve healthcare and empower patients in their own uh, healthcare. And so there I was, a gift from the universe, this amazing vision. I had never been in business. Uh, I had no money to speak of. And, but when you're handed something like that, you say, thank you, God, and move on. And that's exactly what I did. And it's been 19 years now, and there are RNPAs all over the country, and it's an amazing thing to me. The nurses who find this program are passionate, very skilled, very knowledgeable, life learners, excellent communicators, and they're making change in communities all across the country. Not only is it gratifying, it's really exciting for me to watch this happen. Karen, can you, can you talk a little bit about what you saw as an ICU nurse and all those years of experience, what you saw in the healthcare system that sort of propelled you to have, I mean, maybe it propelled you to have the vision or after you had the vision, it was like, okay, these are the reasons why. What are those, what's wrong with the healthcare system? Was the need that informed that vision? That was so articulate. Well, after I quit my job, because I thought my license was at risk due to really poor staffing patterns, I spent the next couple of months reading every study that I could find. I wanted data on where the holes were in the system. And at the end of that two months, it was very clear to me that things were way worse than I knew. Health literacy is in the sub-basement. People don't know what they don't know. They don't know where to find accurate information. They just accept what's told to them, which is not a very helpful way to go into a doctor's office. Medical errors, Hopkins was calling it until COVID, the third leading cause of death. And then misdiagnoses are a real problem. The National Academy of Medicine published a study that demonstrated 12 million misdiagnoses in the U.S. every year. When I saw that, it just blew my head open. But when you read the study, it tells you why. Now, can you imagine why? Why that is? Because care providers don't have the time to really understand a patient's health history. And so patients come into the ER and they have abdominal pain as an example, and there's no time to really get to know the patient. Am I on the right track? You're on the right track. <laughs> Let's home in a little bit further. Okay. 
the reason for all the misdiagnoses and for so many of the preventable medical errors is the fact that docs don't have the information. They're shooting in the dark. Medical records are scattered everywhere, whether they're electronic or paper. There are a lot of errors. Who's got time to read 10 years worth of records, assuming that you can even find them? And that's the reason for the misdiagnoses and a whole lot of the preventable medical errors. Back when I began in O2, most of my patients were in the hospital. It became very obvious to me early on that hospitalists are pretty much shooting in the dark. They are rotating. They may have 50 or 60 patients. They may have an H&P on each of them, maybe, maybe not. And so they don't really understand what's going on with that patient. And so back then, and this is preparatory before the National Academy of Medicine published its study, I started putting together a tool called the MediKey or the Key to Your Medical Care. The first part of that that I started creating was a chronology. I actually would go find all the medical records on that patient that I could possibly find. And I would read them and I would create a timeline of critical clinical events. Docs could not believe their eyes. Nobody ever did that. It takes nurses. I'm telling you, it takes nurses. So anyway, we started that tool and it has continued to progress. In fact, in its latest iteration, we are waiting for funding from the National Science Foundation. They invited us to apply for funding. And this has the potential, and it was created by nurses, it has the potential to reverse the trend toward misdiagnosis and preventable medical errors and save $750 billion. Oh, um, what a wonderful thing to have happen. Anyway, that started back in 03 and has continued to evolve with the assistance of other RN patient advocates. Let me tell you just a minute, hold on. Before we go any further, I want to tell you that in my view, it is the responsibility of experienced clinical RNs with a wide scientific knowledge base and a big skill set to turn things around in the United States. We are spending three times more on our healthcare system than anywhere else in the industrialized country. We are number 38 in terms of healthcare quality in the world, according to the whole uh, Harvard Social Progress Index. So who else, if not us? Why do you think that nurses are uniquely equipped and uniquely positioned? There's a little history lesson here. Back at the turn of the 20th century, when Middle and Western Europe people were migrating and landing in tenants in big cities like New York, and there were very high levels of cholera and high infant mortality, diphtheria, TB, etc. cetera, it, it was a nurse who went in and started public health nursing and actually was able to begin to turn the tide. And public health nursing remains today. Okay, so that was one instance. Then move ahead a little bit. And in the 70s, I don't know if you guys remember, but there was a lack of PCPs. There were not enough docs signing up to be family practitioners because it's very hard and it doesn't pay much. 
compared to other specialties. So what did nursing do? I'm asking, I'll tell you, they created the role of nurse practitioner. And nurse practitioners are now providing a very large segment of primary care in the United States. And then about 10 years later, the health insurance industry came up with a brilliant idea of managed care and nobody knew how to use it. It was a very complex system. People were getting lost. Docs didn't know how to use it. So what did nursing do? Once again, we step into the breach and we created the role of RN case manager. So now in the face of spiraling misdiagnoses and preventable medical errors, horrendous health literacy, lack of empowerment of people in the healthcare system, once again, nurses are stepping forward and that's what independent RN patient advocacy is all about. And it's historic, it's keeping with the history of professional nursing in the United States. There's really nobody else to step forward to begin to make these positive changes in healthcare, in my view. Woohoo! I am so, I was a little bit nervous that um, your typical shyness and, you know, lack of energy. I'm very shy. You said, before you started talking about misdiagnosis, which is an important role for an RNPA, you said sarcastically, because people go into their doctor and just do what they're told. They don't know what else to do. The doctor is supposed to know all, never make mistakes. They don't understand the language. Let, let me be very clear about one thing. Doctors and nurses have not become substandard. All right, they are forced to work in a system that is riven with faults. And the faults always end up in poorer outcomes for their patients, as well as burnout for docs and nurses. So I just wanna be clear about that from the beginning. And as an independent art and patient advocate, you don't have to function in that system. You have to be able to work with it, but you're not within it. That is the big difference. That's key. Tell us some more about health literacy. Why is it that patients can't tell, they don't know what a gallbladder does, or they can barely read the label on a medication bottle? Why is that? Why is health literacy so crap in this country? Well, interesting question. Back in 2004, the National Academy of Adult Learning did a national study to determine just what the level of health literacy is because we were failing on the global front in terms of outcomes. And what they found was that 12%, yes, you heard me right, 12% of people were health literate. You know what that meant? It meant they could read directions on a medical bottle and recognize a word or two. It did not mean they know what a gallbladder is or a thyroid or a pancreas. No pathophysiology was involved here. So that nobody repeated that study until 2016. And they did another national study. And wonder of wonders, they found out that people who are better educated and more financially stable were more health literate. Now there's a surprise. Anyway, the problem is that people don't know what they don't know. They wanna trust their doc. They're frightened. They're confused. They may be angry. They don't know where to get the information. And so they go to sites like WebMD. 
I don't know what you guys know about WebMD, but I'm going to tell you something. WebMD is funded in part by Big Pharma. What does that mean? That means it's a commercial. Yes, they have some accurate information on there. But if you don't know what you're looking at, you're not going to be able to tell the marketing from the information. They don't know how to go to the Library of Medicine under NIH. They don't know the University of Maryland, Johns Hopkins, Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic. They don't know. And so for me, as an RN patient advocate, patient education and health literacy is the central tenet of everything that I do. Karen, is it possible to teach people how to advocate for themselves? Oh, thank you for asking that question. Now, let's say I'm sitting down with somebody, right? And before I start spouting the party line on what I want them to know, there are some very significant things that I need to do. I need to find out, A, what do they know? What are they frightened of? What are they confused about? And here's a big one. What is their learning style? Once you have established that as a foundation, then you can actually begin to bring appropriate information to them in the format that they will most understand and comprehend. Also, you have to find out who's the learner. Let's say you've got an 80-year-old client who's descending into Alzheimer's. That's not going to be your primary learner. So who is the primary learner? You got to figure that out. None of this educational outreach is going to work unless you have done something very significant first. And that is establishing a therapeutic relationship. What does that mean? Are you asking us? Yeah. <laughs> she does this all the time. I know. I would say, in my experience, I don't know exactly the answer you're looking for, but I'm sure you'll tell me. So many of these people have never actually sat in front of somebody and told their story. And when I think of therapeutic relationship, yes, that's the nature of the relationship. It's therapeutic. But the relationship itself is therapeutic. It's like I always say, you are the supplement to new RNPAs. You are the supplement because just sitting there being present with somebody, possibly for the first time in their life as they tell their story, is in itself a healing relationship. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head by saying that no one has listened to them ever. They don't even know how to elucidate their own story. It's by skillful questioning, utilizing techniques like motivational interviewing that you can begin to elicit what they've been through. Well, I will tell you one thing that I've learned after 53 years of clinical nursing, nobody knows their body like they do. And given the opportunity to speak with them and listen to them, does begin to establish that, that level of trust and the therapeutic relationship, which must underlay everything that you do as an independent RN patient advocate. Once you have established that, then you can really go to work. Then you can really help. Can you give us an example of a patient or a client that you had that, that you helped with teaching them to better advocate for themselves and what that kind of looked like? Yeah, I can. Well, I mean, how many hours do you have? I can tell lots of stories. 
I'm thinking in particular of a gentleman that I had many years ago, client. He was at the time 75 or 76 years old. He was 25 years post uh, quadruple cabbage and he was not doing well. He had a abdominal aortic aneurysm that had to be repaired. He was scared to death. The doctors were telling him what they were going to do, but he didn't understand. He didn't know any pathophysiology. And so when I was able to get in there and talk to him about A, all the very positive things that he was already doing, such as with his nutrition, stopping drinking, stopping smoking, right? Encourage, encourage. I was able to teach him what was happening when he went into the hospital to have this done. I was right there. I was right there with him. The docs knew me as an RN patient advocate. You are a different entity. And in the RN patient advocacy learning intensive, you learn how to do that because you stand out. So we were able to get him home early because I was watching him. And he said to me, I will never, ever go into the hospital again without you by my side, Karen. Another little continuation on this, teaching him what's possible. A couple of years later, he was a long-term patient. A couple of years later, his ejection fraction had fallen down to 32 or 33. Just for people who might not know what that is. An ejection fraction is a measure of the pumping capability of your left ventricle. When you get down to a measurement such as 32 or 33, the American Board of Cardiology recommends that you have implanted a pacer defibrillator, which costs about 40 grand. And every couple of years, they have problems with their batteries. So you may have to have that replaced. Anyway, so his cardiologist said, now it's time to put in the pacer defib. And I said, I don't understand. He eats better than I do. He does cardio exercise every day without decompensating. Not quite sure what the pacer defib is going to do. Meanwhile, back in the ranch, I had a few other things in mind. I said to the cardiologist, will you give me a couple of weeks? And he said, sure. So I took advantage of that time. As an RN patient advocate, when you are researching or data mining, for advanced diagnostic and therapeutic strategies, you have to look globally because the United States is not number one. Yes, we have a lot of interesting and good information. Do we have a corner on the market? Absolutely not. So I was looking and found a wonderful article in the European Journal of Heart Failure out of France. And in there, they said that there were four things that must be considered before you stick a pacer defib in. And ejection fraction is only one of them. So I highlighted and underlined, took that into the doctor's office and my old axiom, big smile, feet don't move. Uh, You hand over the article and I said, I find this very interesting. Tell me what you think. So he scans this and he looks at my patient and he looks at me and he said, this is amazing. He said, I don't need to see you for six months. No pacer defib, no 40 grand, no failing batteries. 
And so I was able to get busy working with him, teaching him about certain supplements, certain proteins and vitamins and minerals that could help build his ejection fraction. And this is not rocket science here, and it's available for anybody who wants to look it up. We had his fraction up within four or five months to 45. So he is not going to get a pacer defib. Thank you very much. Anyway, as an RN patient advocate, the coolest thing is you get to do what you know is right. You get to really use your brain. You get to be very creative. It utilizes all parts of your brain. It's just, shoot, Mama, I have been a nurse for so long. I mean, I have done so many things because I'm fairly easily bored. Once I finished one area, then I would go on to it. I started my career. I was an RN by the time I was 19. I went to school early and I was working at Georgetown University Hospital. That was a gift because we had all these medical students and we had world-class attendings and they were all interested in teaching us. I mean, I was obviously just a child and that was pretty obvious. And I was learning, learning, learning. I worked in ICUs. I worked in every ICU over the years. I did baby burns to learn what it was all about. That was fairly scary. I did that for a year. I did adult burns for a couple of years. I worked in recovery back when it was called recovery. I did that for a number of years. I was able to do another national program actually, and this was back in the eighties. It was under the aegis of a corporate body, 14 hospital. I didn't do it by myself, but it was all about rearranging nursing care in hospitals with a program that I called RN credentialing. And according to JCO, we had the most advanced program going. I had a task force of 32 and over two years, man, we rewrote nursing care. It was wonderful. And then I was all over the United States telling people how to do that. I've been a clinical instructor for new nurses. I was a clinical instructor for the first paramedics in Arizona. I helped set up the first hospice in Arizona. Is that enough? Years is a long time to be a nurse. Yeah, let's stop there. I'm feeling a little insecure. Um, (laughs) Can I just ask a follow-up question? Because Andra touched on it. I just want to circle back a little bit. When you told about the man who had the quadruple bypass, what did you see because of the time you spent with him, increasing his health literacy, increasing, giving him the tools to how to find things out. I don't know. I know it's different with every client, but some of it rubs off on everyone. How did you see him evolve in his ability to advocate for himself? Okay. Great he question. knew where to get the information that he needed. I taught him where to get the accurate information in a language he could understand. And I taught him the validity of asking questions. I taught him that asking questions was his responsibility. And that if physicians did not accept that, then he's in the wrong office. So I taught him where to get the stuff. I taught him how to ask questions and gave him the confidence to do so. And there's a very specific way in the RN patient advocacy process that you can do that. Does that answer your question? Yep. Yes. It's so important. Yeah. And then to piggyback on that, you started to talk about some of the things that he could do naturopathically to, to 
regain his health. So talk to us more about integrative functional health and how did you even discover it? Like, let's hear. Yeah. So you talked about the state of the healthcare system, misdiagnosis, how the role of the RMPA in collecting the medical record really helps to heal that rift. I mean, the misdiagnosis rift, as you're collecting somebody's record, summarizing it, handing it to all of their doctors is a much less, and even a new doctor has that information on board. So they, they know the whole history, they know the patient. So that's one thing, a huge thing that a RNPA does. The other thing you talked about was health literacy, teaching. I started reading about something called functional medicine. What the heck is functional medicine? As an ICU nurse and a tried and true traditional Western medicine practitioner, it fascinated me. It turned my head around. Let me tell you about functional medicine. And there are docs who practice this, naturopaths, DOs, NMDs, and nurse pracs all over the country who go back to school to learn this. They do something pretty surprising. They go after root cause. Let's say, for example, you get a big diagnosis. Somebody says you got cancer. The first question should not be, what chemo are we going to use on you? It should be, why do you have cancer? What has allowed this to happen? There are major national labs all across the U.S. that these docs and practitioners utilize to find out why. Now, here's a good question for you. Once you know why something is happening, what can you do? Ding! <laughs> you can ameliorate, you can treat it successfully rather than just throwing drugs at them to control their symptoms. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It started back in the 70s with an accent on nutrition by a fellow by the name of Dr. Jeffrey Bland, who is the godfather of functional medicine globally. And he thinks our inpatient advocates are the tip top of patient advocacy in the country, by the way. He and I have established a relationship way back. Anyway, so that's how I found about functional and integrative. And then a little later on, what really did it is learning about something called systems biology. Now, a lot of nurses have not heard about this yet, but when you come to this program, should you choose to do this as part of your career, you're going to hear all about it. Let me tell you. When in nursing programs, as well as medical school, how are you taught about the system? You're taught there's cardio, neuro, renal, yep. right? And then there's a specialist for each one. They don't talk to each other because nobody's got time and nobody's looking for the interconnections. What they have found and demonstrated repeatedly through research is that from the gene level out, and this is so wonderful, from the gene level out, everything in our body is connected. Let me give you a little example. Let's say you've got an inflammatory bowel condition, right? You've got IBS. What other systems do you suppose might be affected if you've got this going on? Yeah. All right. Well, first of all, you're not going to be absorbing nutrients properly. Yeah, so this is going to affect your nutrition. It is also going to affect your immune system because half, more than half of your immune system is located in your small intestine. And so if you've got a dysbiotic or a small intestine that's impacted by major inflammation, then your immune system is going to be impacted also. 
as will your level of whole body inflammation. And now here's one for you. How about every, your- every, every time you do that, like I get excited that I might answer a question right. <laughs> There's something, you know, something about like the, like know. your way of teaching or your way of asking questions. Like, pick I, me, I, pick, me. <laughs> pick me, I know the answer. <laughs> okay, so what's another connection, a big one? Nervous system, brain. Why? Because a lot of your neurotransmitters, like serotonin, a lot of it's produced in the gut. Yeah, 95% of it's produced in the gut. Your gut is called your second brain. Really? Yes. What they're finding is that your uh, immune system in your gut is identical to the immune system in your brain. Nobody even knew you had an immune system in your brain until the last 10, 12 years. Well, you do. And so if you're affecting your immune in your gut and in your body, it's gonna affect your brain. Now, let's go back to what Karen mentioned and that is neurotransmitters. Because 95% of your serotonin is produced in your gut and your gut is not working properly, then you are being set up for anxiety disorders, clinical depression, right? So there's another connection that's going on. And then there's a big one, and that is the Human Genome Project. Here is a question for your family when you have another discussion. How much genetic material sitting in your shoes today is human? I know, okay. I know. Entra, how much? 10%. 10%. That's I, crazy. <laughs> I used to think it was 100%. I was dead wrong. Anyway, well, what's the other 90? The other 90 is bacteria, viruses, protozoa, and fungi. How did this happen? Well, let's go back a few years to when we were in the ocean as a single-celled organism. And as we began to evolve, and you know how many millions of years that took, we were evolved, co-evolving with bacteria, protozoa, viruses, and fungi. And in fact, today, they represent 90% of the genetic material in our body. Without that, we'd be dead. There would not be humans. So that's called your human microbiome. And there are major global centers and studies advancing the science of the human microbiome. However, there's one not just in your gut, but there's also a skin biome, an oral biome, a vaginal biome, and the big kahuna is in your gut. So I just kept learning and learning. I'll tell you one thing, to become an independent RN patient advocate, you must be a life learner. You must be curious about everything. Does that mean you're gonna use functional on every patient? No. Does that mean you're going to use systems biology as an understanding uh, for every patient? Yes, it does. So what do you do because you have all this, not only knowledge that's in your head, stuff that you've learned, but because of curiosity being your superpower and you know how to access it and you know where to data mine, where to get to all this information. When you have a client come to you, because I'm sure people are listening to this who aren't medical people and like, wow, there's all these options, but what if 
What if they're scared? What if conventional is the only way they want to go? How do you reconcile that with your knowing what could be done and their hesitancy? How do you reconcile that? Really good question. Let's go back to therapeutic relationship. I can't teach effectively. I can't guide. I can't advocate on their behalf without that therapeutic relationship as a basis. If they don't know anything about advanced science, I have to accept that. It is my job as an independent RMPA to show them potential approaches to whatever is going on. Should they choose to stay with traditional, it's my responsibility as an RMPA to make certain that they get the best traditional Western medicine possible. And that means evaluating the integrity of the diagnostic process and data mining for the most appropriate and helpful therapeutic approaches. I mean, traditional Western medicine has a lot to offer, don't get me wrong. It just doesn't have all the answers, which it currently thinks it does. So if they wanna stay with that, that is their right. It is not my responsibility to make their choices. It's mine to advocate on their behalf, make sure they're getting the best, teach them what's going on and guide them through the system. Their choice, not mine. It goes along with what we were saying earlier about encouraging your clients to really sort of listen to themselves and to figure out what's the best course of action for them. And if the integrative systems, biology, functional medicine world doesn't appeal to them, then that's okay. But they're making a fully informed informed choice. Yeah, decision. As long as they're making an informed choice. I was going to ask you to give some examples. You gave us the one of the guy with the heart bypass, but the power of the advocacy process and the role in collecting medical records, translating, preventing misdiagnosis, increasing health literacy, and giving people access and education about alternatives, functional systems. I'll tell you another story. Miracles. What what is that process? You want to hear a miracle? That's not a miracle. This this is teamwork. As an RNPA, you are taught how to create really viable teams. I got a call in January of 13 from a 57, 58-year-old gentleman who had just been diagnosed with stage four non-small cell lung cancer, which is probably the most aggressive lung cancer you can have. And it was already stage four. He was not a smoker. He happened to live right near a toxin-laced golf course, and he was not going to move, but their entire water system had been affected. I kept him with, here's the team, with his mainstream oncologist, radiation oncologist, PCP, I pulled in naturopathic oncology, and I'll talk about that in a minute. I pulled in nutrition, and we're going on nine years that he's still alive, still functioning. He just got back from Hawaii two months ago. I mean, he has so far outlived anyone else, and it's not magic. It's knowing how to do it. And as an integrative RN patient advocate, you're taught how to do that. It's a beautiful thing. It's amazing to me what you can do. It's so amazing that you think without, um, when you just think conventionally, or you just think, as we've, most of us have been told, you get older and it just goes downhill from there. And that's a perfect example of taking somebody, figuring out 
the root cause of what was going on. And then that outside of the box thinking is a miracle for some. I'm 70 and it's here. Well, I can only expect it to go like this. Uh, you mentioned out of the box. What box? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there is no box. No box. Saying that often. There is no box. For an independent or patient advocate, there is no box. It is your responsibility to use science to begin to reverse a patient's uh, health trajectory. And I've seen it again and again and again. I remember I had another client um, long ago who had an appy. They blew it. She, her entire gut, uh, she had a major hematoma in there. And then reading her record, I see they're treating her for MS. The lady didn't have MS. So not only did they screw up her surgery, and which meant another surgery and all kinds of things to go along with that, but we had to get her off the MS medication. And so tracking back through the medical record, I found an error. Someone else's data had been entered into her record. So, and this is not a unique situation. Oh my gosh, I know. <laughs> oh, 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 tell the one about Lawrence. This lady had a CVA. She had um, an aneurysm in her brain. Uh, so on Christmas Eve night one year, she completely passed out. Fortunately, they were next to Dartmouth in the same town, took her right in. They took her for surgery. They clipped that aneurysm and they um, found another one and clipped that also. And after she was done with hospitalization where they had totally screwed things up. Um, they stuck a peg in, she developed cellulitis, she had a stress-induced MI. Oh God, finally got her out of the hospital and sent her to the leading rehab center, neuro rehab center in the area. Things were going fairly well until she developed a hyponatremia situation. When you have brain damage, you very often lose levels of sodium. And if that happens, you can be, develop a hyponatremia, hyposodium, comatose state, which happened to her. So this is all before we, we really got busy to pull her out. When we got her back, they had stopped doing physical therapy because she was not comatose, but she was hyperreactive to environmental stimuli. She had a peg tube and they were feeding her fake factory food. And P.S., there's a better way to do that now. They were not observing her. So I was. And one day they had wheeled her out uh, to visit with family. And two surprising things happened. She was out on the lawn and I saw her reach down and she started trying to eat dandelions. The woman was hungry. And then a lifelong friend of hers came to visit and I watched Florence's eyes very closely and she was there and she recognized her friend. So I talked to the neurologist and I said, I think she's in there. And he said, I think you're right. Here's the little problem. Since they had stopped doing PT, she was developing not only decubes, but all kinds of movement issues. And we needed to get her out of there because they were going to discharge her to a skilled nursing facility. And that would have been the end of her. So uh, they said, she's not gonna get any better. 
Oh yeah. I worked with the family to get her into a rehab where they would allow external therapists to come in as well, where they were open to being questioned, where they were open to an RN patient advocate working with their team and with the family to begin to change things. So we got her organic food delivered. So she wasn't eating the stuff there. And within two weeks, she was off the peg and she was eating. She was hungry. The woman was hungry. Um, we also got started core training because she couldn't even sit up. So we got a really advanced physical therapist working with her on core training. So within a matter of a couple of weeks, she's able to sit up on the edge of the bed. Meanwhile, she is starting to become much more reality-based. So we got her the food, we got her the physical therapy. They said she was working with an integrative neurologist who was very open to working with an RMTA. However, everybody said, this woman is never gonna walk and she's never gonna be continent. And you gotta be satisfied with that. Oh, really? There are so many things that you can do as an RN patient advocate. Anyway, so I had a team meeting with everybody involved in her team, and we came up with a program of advanced physical therapy and everything that was needed nutritionally and support-wise to do that. And you cannot imagine the look on that neurologist's face when Florence walked in the office. Oh, yes, she did. <laughs> and she became continent. She no longer had to wear a diaper. She was traveling around the United States to go see her grandchildren. This woman's life was recovered. And it was through utilization of advanced science and the appropriate team put together by the RN patient advocate working closely with her family. It seems like if you didn't have a patient advocate, you would just get lost in the system. Like how, how would any of that have come to pass if you hadn't been there? They would have sent her to a SNP and she would have been gone. That's just such a telling story about the need for nurses to be independent advocates. Just to even know that there's options, that you can be curious. Is that true? Isn't there's nothing more that can be done. Is that true? And having somebody that like a dog on a bone. There are always options. As an RN patient advocate, it's your job to find out what those options are, looking globally, looking at all advanced science as well as traditional Western medicine. That's your job. Okay, well, so to that point, I wanna kinda switch gears a little bit because I want to know, when did you start to take an interest in teaching nurses how to do what you were doing? And how did the course come about? Well, it was part of the vision, actually. I knew I'd be teaching eventually. And I got to tell you, I've been a teacher since I was a little child. I, I was born with a fairly active mouth. And, um, really? I, <laughs> <laughs> and I am a teacher. I love to teach. After I had that vision, I spent seven years of solo practice here in Arizona, as well as nationally, working with patients one-on-one, -on -one, developing the model. I mean, you can't sit in a room and make this stuff up. It has to be based on actual practice. So after seven years, the RN patient advocacy process, which is a matrix model, quite different than the linear nursing, pro nursing process, it was solid. 
no matter what you threw at it, it worked. And so by that time, so many nurses had written and called me and said, this has been my dream. I want to do this too. So I thought, okay, it's time to teach. So I never wrote a curriculum. I mean, I did a lot of stuff, but that wasn't one of them. So I got together with educators and an RN PhD who was a curriculum development specialist. And they helped me put together the first beta test little class. I picked five nurses from different geographic areas around the country. As I said, it was a beta test. It was four days long. It was two or three weeks after that, that I was talking to the Dean here at the College of Nursing at the University of Arizona. And she was very interested. And she said, would you please come in here and tell us what you're doing? Well, as you know, I'm not very shy. So I went in and there is a, a big conference room full of top faculty, all PhDs and me. I spent two and a half hours teaching them everything. I gave soup to nuts and that the, the room was silent. At the end of that time, the Dean looks at me and said, Karen, this sounds like the beginning of a new practice model. Ding. That's exactly what it is. And here was the gift. She said, would you consider partnering with us? Oh my God. Oh my God. They're one of the leading colleges of nursing in the U.S. And to have them reach out and go, will you partner with us? Thus began 10 years of serious mentoring of Karen in program development, curriculum development, advanced teaching techniques. I met with the Dean monthly. I met weekly with a faculty mentor. Truly, it, it was a gift. It was a gift. We're still very closely associated with the University of Arizona. In fact, some of their modules are included in the learning intensive. That was seriously a gift. Joan Schaefer was the Dean for anyone who didn't know. She's a pioneer, like really yes. talk about no box. Yes, she is, she is a visionary leader. And in, in an academia, that was that's a bold move to kind of um, break tradition, sacred cows, that sort of thing. Well, she she's a risk taker. She took a chance on me. What's your vision for the future of RMPA? What is that going to look like to you? What does that look like to you? What I see as the future is growing the body of our inpatient advocates, since nobody is doing the advanced work that we're doing, I see the population expanding. And here's the thing, when you become an inpatient advocate and you complete the program, you don't go home and do your own thing. You become a member of a national community who will support you and help you in your practice. I see that there will be more RNPAs I see that we will begin to develop a political voice so that we can begin to make legislative changes as well. I see that we are going to have what Antra and Karen have been calling the RNPA Academy and begin to add more things available in teaching. For example, right now we're looking at adding basic wound care for every RNPA. We are also looking at adding, what if you just want to stick with traditional? What if your practice is ICU? Well, we have an RNPA in Chicago, Terry Dreyer, who has developed that program. 
I see that we are going to be addressing more and more areas of clinical need. I see that we are going to be recognized as by the general population as people who can really help them. We will have a publishing side. RNPA is growing and it's growing because it has to. No one's doing what we're doing. What have been the biggest obstacles, do you think, to it? Because there's such it's so obvious. I mean, I, I've, I've said to people, we're guaranteed an attorney. If you can't afford one, one will be afforded to you because the judicial system, the language is so convoluted and complicated and case law and da, da, da. You can't go into it if you don't have somebody who speaks that language and can represent you and advocate for you. Well, in the judicial system, the risk is finer freedom. In the medical system, it's injury or death or lack of appropriate care, like with Florence, like injury or death are just stopped in your, you know, your recovery stopped in its tracks because nobody's willing or people don't know that there's something else that can be done. Why a independent patient advocate? Well, I know why. I want to know what you, why, why you think, what are the biggest obstacles, but why the future should be, if you cannot afford one, one will be provided for you because a medical system convoluted, complicated, and not every option is even touched on. Well, thank you for asking that. We have a 501c3 called Health Education and Advocacy Leaders or HEAL. And one of the things that I see in the future is that we will develop a sliding scale program. I need to also tell anyone who's considering becoming an RMPA, everybody does, does pro bono. Do you do all pro bono? No, you still have to buy food and pay your mortgage. But every RNPA does do some pro bono. I would like to see a national program where the government recognizes, CMS recognizes, that there is a need for the work that we do. And whether this is done through a demonstration project, through CMS, there are a number of different ways that you could approach this to prove to government so that the funding is there. Everybody agrees that nursing is the most trusted member of the healthcare team. World Health Organization has claimed that for 18 years now. Since we are doing such advanced work, I think recognition needs to be there. Oh, I will tell you, when Obama came into office talking about future, I went to Washington and met with as many congressmen and women as I could Told, telling them what we were doing. Pretty much got a pat on the head since I was a nobody and didn't have big funding. But I also wrote to everyone on that committee who was dealing with the beginnings of Obamacare, starting with Obama and Michelle Obama and every person on the committee. I did a big publicity campaign with graphics on all nine yards. And I, I did not hear back from anyone except Michelle Obama and I still have that letter, who said, grassroots is how this happens. Keep this up. So I think it's time to write to Michelle again. You know, it's time to start reaching out to people who have a big platform. And I see that as being helpful in pulling more experienced and qualified nurses into this, into this role. To begin, the goal is to improve healthcare. Yeah, I mean, what you just said is so important with HEAL and grassroots. When people start to understand that they can demand better, mm -hmm. 
that they can demand more, that our doctors and nurses work for us, that we're the bosses. That's when it'll really change. When they know the standard of care that needs to be delivered and they insist on it, but they don't even know that's where our NPAs totally come in. They make such a huge difference. Even the modeling, right, Karen? Like even the modeling, when you go into a patient into a patient's doctor appointment and you're asking the questions because they don't want to, pretty soon I start to find that my clients start asking their own questions. They start getting more curious. So, you know, that so important. But like, we're doing this, we can do this. Oh, yeah. oh I can ask the doctor a question. Hmm, I think I'm going to call and ask. Yeah. Well, one thing that, that I teach nurses to do is when you're preparing your patient to go into an office for a meeting, um, typically, in addition to the teaching of pathophysiology, what's going on, I create two question lists. One is for the patient or my client, and one is for me. I get the technical stuff, but I also create the, the list of questions with them so that they are asking knowledgeable questions. I make certain they understand exactly why they're asking it. And we do, may do a little role modeling so they get comfortable in asking questions. And then they do, as you said, Andre, they start taking off. So how does a nurse become an RM patient advocate? And who's ideally qualified to become an RM patient advocate? Qualifications uh, do not depend upon how many letters you have after your name. And there are a number of reasons for that. What we are most interested in is RNs who have several years of practice, hopefully in different areas. So they already have a, a good beginning knowledge base and skill set. They must be very skilled communicators on many levels. They must be critical thinkers. And here's the big one. They must be life learners. If you do not have a major curiosity muscle working in your life. This is probably not for you. So those are some you of the- be a dog with a bone, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, those are some of the, the major qualifications. What we do is I like to speak to nurses first and ask them some questions and listen to their story. Why are they interested in this? What do they see as the necessity? What if some a nurse has the clinical experience and the varied, as you said, and has all the chops that you were talking about and is curiosity as their superpower, but they listen to the stories you've told about the bypass guy, sorry, and, and Florence and like, I would never be able to think like that. I would, you know, just like the insecurity of, I would never be able to think to do that, to bring in organic food, to move a patient to another thing. I would never be able, like, what would you tell them? Somebody who's got right, the or chops, about, but not the competence. Right. Like if you've been in one clinical area for most of your career, where your other experience was early on, and then you think, oh my gosh, what would I do with the cancer patient? I've never done any kind of oncology. How could I be a patient advocate? So All right. I'm going to ask you that question, Nantra, because you're an excellent example. That's <laughs> so darn it. You were in the OR for 198 years before you got here to the RN Patient Advocacy Program. How did you transition? Were you a little bit scared? Did you wonder if you could do this? Yes, all of those are true. I was a little bit scared. I wondered if I could do it. But the fact of the matter is nurses, registered nurses are advocates no matter what they do. So my experience has been that you don't actually need to be an expert in everything because if you're curious and 
you're a dog with a bone and you get a client who has a, a complex medical diagnosis that you know nothing about, you will figure it out. You'll figure it out with them and you'll create that team and, and it'll be fine. Uh, in my experience, it's worked. And you have a national network of our patient advocates right. to reach out to. That's hey, right. I have this patient. I am clueless. I don't know what to do. Who, you know, talk to me and yep. talk to other RN patient advocates who will respond mm -hmm. and help you. Yep. Do you have a sense of adventure? Mm -hmm. Do you, are, are you enough dissatisfied with what you're doing to go for something exciting that you've never done before with guidance and teaching and support? You're not thrown out there all by yourself. No. You have guidance and support all along the way. And as I said earlier, and I'll repeat, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. And I've done a lot of stuff. My practice evolved and become so different, but every person that comes is like a whole new story. Mm -hmm. Yep. They're yeah. No in fact, I, it, interesting, I got a call today um, from a nurse who's interested in the program and she wanted to know if she was too old. I said, how old are you? And she said, I'm 55. I started to laugh because I was 54 when I started this 19 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still going. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so we have a good, good laugh about that. If you're retired and you're looking for something new and very interesting that you can do part-time, this is certainly a good approach. Or if you want something full-time and you're very dissatisfied with what's going on in the clinical setting right now, you want to stay in nursing, but you don't want to do that anymore, this may very well be an option for you to investigate. How does somebody get a hold of you? If you go to rnpatientadvocates.com, you will learn all about the program. And in there, there's an email that I can get. I talk to nurses day in and day out. I'd be delighted to speak with you Patient and see whether or not this is a path you may wish to take. Wonderful. All right. One last question. You've been given an assignment. It's your last lecture. Your last time you'll ever be able to speak in front of a crowd. I'll what, be dead, right? Well, <laughs> actually, I was given this assignment before. I was to pretend I was going to be dead, but you don't have to pretend you're going to be dead. We all are one day, but it's the last time you'll be able to teach anybody. You uh, have, you can teach them anything. What is the- Who am I teaching? You get to decide what is something that you learned that is most important for you to leave behind. I would choose to speak with nurses to open their minds to the incredible potential that they have for improving healthcare outcomes and for beginning to shift the healthcare system in favor of good outcomes and better patient care. I, I would want the opportunity to have them realize their potential. That would be what I would choose. Awesome. That's pretty amazeballs. Yeah. Amazeballs. <laughs> balls. For anybody listening to this recording who was just listening for your own curiosity, life enrichment, understanding, entertainment, this is where your portion ends. <laughs> if you are a nurse who would like a CE credit for listening to this recording, you can go to Renegade, that's R-N-E-G-A-D-E dot pro, mm -hmm. renegade.pro, 
uh, go on renegade.pro and you can take the evaluation and do the activity so that you can get your CE for learning about uh, our inpatient advocacy and all about Karen Mercero. Thank you, Karen, so much. So lovely to have you on the podcast and your enthusiasm just shines right through. Love the passion. Yeah, you could have at the end there, you could have talked about anything. It's your last lecture and she wants to tell nurses about their potential. <laughs> about their potential. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the RNA Gade podcast. If you're a nurse and would like a CE for listening to this, go over to the rnegade.pro website. Andra, spell that for me, please. That's R-N-E-G-A-D-E dot pro. Thank you. So go on the website, find the podcast, do the activity. And if you have any questions, contact us and we'll be happy to help. And if you can't figure it out, good luck. <laughs>